Welcome food enthusiasts to this episode of the Future Foodcast. We're so excited you could join us today. We have a great guest of McCain Foods. She's the vice president of digital and data. Her name is Carolyn Morissette. We are so excited to have her. Welcome to the podcast, Carolyn. Thank you, Pam. Excited to be here. Yeah, we have a lot of topics to dive into that I think our audience is going to be really excited about. But first of all, tell me a little bit about what you do there at McCain Foods. Absolutely. I am proud to be part of our technology team at McCain Foods. We in my team lead digital and data. So we're responsible for how technologies support our business processes and our customers and our suppliers across agriculture across sales and commercial and across manufacturing. And then our data team is responsible for making data available in the company and supporting McCain to be a data-led organization. Wow, that is a quite a big task that you have undertaken there. And I didn't realize how big McCain Foods is. If you want to share a little bit of that with us, I think our audience would be, you don't always hear the name. But. Absolutely. Depends where you live. Um, McCain is a household name in many of the countries that we operate, Canada being one. So McCain Foods is a Canadian company. We have a pretty strong retail brand in Canada, as well as in the UK, Australia, India, France, a number of countries. McCain is a household name. Um, and then in other countries, McCain is less well known. For example, in the United States, uh, we sell quite a lot of McCain products to important uh, customers in QSR and in other restaurants as well. Um, and the stat we like to quote is one in four French fries in the world is a McCain fry. Uh, so McCain is extremely well covered geographically. We have farming and, and uh, manufacturing operations on every continent except Antarctica. We are uh, a global company headquartered in Toronto, Canada. Very exciting. You really truly are a worldwide brand. And like you said, your, your actual name is known many, many, many countries. And then in other countries, we're consuming McCain fries. And we might not know that because if you're in a, a QSR a restaurant that, that serves your product, we don't always know what that brand name is. And that's what I was referring to, I guess, here in the state, which is where I am. I think um, that's a lot of the case. Uh, for right. me. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things about your company is that they are family owned. We are. Absolutely. Yes. The McCain, the McCain companies is family owned 60 year old, uh, 65 actually is our 65th anniversary this year. Very exciting. Well, that gives you really some additional leverage over your decision making process and the things that you really think are important and want to put money and resources to. What are some of the areas that are important to the McCain family? Absolutely. I feel very lucky actually to work for a family owned company. Um, one of the things that affords is the ability to do longer term investments where perhaps the, the ROI isn't quite known in the first 18 or 24 months. One example of that is uh, the McCain family's commitment to sustainability. It's very proud moment for us um, that we've committed so deeply to sustainability, not only as sort of a feel good topic, but really we view sustainability as critical for our business. Um, we do make products out of agricultural products. So French fries do come from potatoes. Um, and we do take very seriously that the viability of potato growers is at risk with climate change. 
and what can McCain company do to support growers to be viable in farming potatoes for generations to come. Um, and so we've made some, some pretty bold decisions about how we're supporting more sustainable practices in agriculture, as well as in our manufacturing operations, and frankly, across all of our operations, but probably agriculture is the most significant. One example of that is we've committed that 100% of our, our farming acreage will be grown with regenerative agriculture practices by 2030. That um, commitment was made last year, and we've actually just followed up very recently in early June with our regenerative agriculture framework and the practices that will be part of that framework. Well, Carolyn, for our listeners that might not be familiar, what is regenerative agriculture? Yes. So regenerative agriculture is a way of farming in a more sustainable way um, that looks to reduce our impact on the environment with things like what we call armored soils or adding more or cover crops to the soil to protect the top level of soil um, using things like crop diversity so making sure that potatoes are being rotated with other crops that bring in naturally nutrients into the soil it's uh, asking growers to do things like reducing the amount of to toxicity and the pesticides that they're using things like that so it's it's specific kinds of agricultural practices that are grounded in a framework that, that we're actually announcing this year, year 2022, with a framework to support growers on their journey towards regenerative agriculture practices. Well, that's really exciting. And I love the aspect of, of the fact that you're really partnering with the farmers that are growing Absolutely. your potatoes. You're valuing what they're doing and trying to help them do what they do better uh, and enabling them to to get into this re regenerative agriculture and supporting them in that. Are there other things, because you have data and digital, is there yeah. other numbers or analytics or whatever that you can use to help your farmers? Do you? Yeah, one of the things that I'm pretty passionate about is that you're a farmer and you are making important decisions about how to break even or make a profit this year. Some of what we're asking growers to take on looks like a, an investment and, and perhaps a very significant investment that like any good business person, which is what growers are, they have to have their own ROI for that calculation. And in general, farmers do take a longer view and they are family owned businesses, usually by definition as well. Um, and so you're not necessarily having classical sort of IRR, IRR calculations, but you have to be able to make a business argument, not only an ESG or sustainability argument. Um, and so what I see my role in digital and data is bringing data to those conversations, showing growers that when they make these investments in new farming practices or they're reducing tillage or they're reducing sort of traditional modes of farming, that there is not a significant impact to yield or to the payables that they would receive for their product. So that's where I see the role of my team is, is providing that data, providing that insight so growers feel comfortable to make those investments or to make the changes in their agricultural practices, um, knowing that it's not going to hurt their bottom line. Yeah, you know, and sustainability is really at the forefront of a lot of decisions that are being made right now. And consumers care about whether companies are investing in more sustainable practices or not. So that's a great initiative that McCain has going. And the fact that you can then support the business case 
for sustainability and the farmers taking those actions from your department with the data and the analytics that you get. That just helps, again, that partnership. Uh, so those farm, the growers don't have to just make those decisions on their own. You actually have some numbers to back those things up. That's right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty passionate about the ability to make a change in this way, right? It's, um, I think ESG programs are, are really fascinating. I've been in, invested in this for probably 20 years now. Mm -hmm. I know, and if I think back in my career, we talked about having recycling boxes in the office. And if I think about where we are now, where one in four French fries could be impacted by very significant changes in agricultural practices. It's just, it's a huge, um, it's a huge impact curve that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Yeah, because McCain Foods does have a big impact. Like you're saying, one in four, and, and that's a huge number of growers uh, that right. you're interfacing with. Well, there are other things that um, you're doing as far as you get in a lot of source material, a lot of potatoes from all parts of the country. I know you have manufacturing all around the world. And how do you figure out <laughs> how to work with all of that? I mean, that is, that's a huge operation. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And we've been working on it for 65 years. So we have some pretty good tools, um, but we're using data and digital in, in interesting ways there. Um, another project that uh, we're working on quite publicly with our growers is something called Precision Harvest, or that's, that's what we're calling it anyway. It's a bit of a play on precision agriculture, which is using data and technology to support farmers in their farming practices. Precision Harvest is a tool that we've built to support farmers in knowing when to harvest and that is a function of weather data, um, but also farming practices and how the crop has been growing, which we can capture that information from satellite imagery. Um, so we've been working on some AI models that forecast yield based on all that we see from the satellites throughout the growing season, all the way from planting to emergence to canopy, full canopy, et cetera. We have different sort of KPIs that we monitor. Uh, obviously the weather and that condition, we look for things like heat domes, like what we had last, uh, last summer in the Pacific Northwest, for instance. We're sort of looking for events like that. And what we're doing is trying to understand how climate change might change sort of the, the normal heuristics of how a farmer would operate, right? It's sort of traditional that we try to get potatoes out of the ground by early October, or in Canada, we would say by Thanksgiving. Well, maybe since the falls have been warmer, we could leave them longer. And what would that mean in terms of yield or some of the other quality attributes that we look for, for example, potato length? as an example. And so what we're trying to do again is give growers data and information to make those decisions rather than you know every year we try to get them out of the ground by October because a snow or a frost might come. Now we, we can predict if a snow or a frost might come and we can predict how that might change the quality of the potato. So we've been working on these models. We're launching with a pilot set of growers this summer um, with these models and we're pretty excited about it. Um, the models also look to optimize for an individual grower, how many fields does he have in his operation? How many harvesters does he have? Does he work on Sundays, yes or no? How far apart are the fields? So we're trying to bring all this data together to do a true optimization model that supports the grower to make the best decisions to optimize his payables, right? Optimize the total yield he can have and obviously get the best quality potato to McCain. So we are, incentives are totally aligned here. It's a great outcome for the grower. It's a great outcome for McCain and it's a great outcome for the planet because ultimately we're getting 
more food that we can convert into into food that feeds consumers uh, downstream. Well, an example. That's a great example. Several threads here. First of all, the uneducated or those who aren't involved in farming or the sourcing of our food, you know, the old farmer's almanac, we, we've definitely catapulted. We've had that one, yes. <laughs> Way beyond that. I mean, which would say, yeah, in general, like you were saying, we're going to get those potatoes out of the ground in October and then you are worldwide. So you've got to take in into consideration all the different environmental factors that are happening in all different areas of the world. I just can't even imagine the amount of data that comes in that you're trying to assimilate and then get back out to individual growers in very specific places. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's very fun. I like to say it's a data problem. Uh, Problems like that are highly scalable with technology, which is why it's really exciting. Um, in the past, like you said, we would have had to be looking through almanacs or talking to different people on the ground. We couldn't support uh, the kind of advances we've been able to make with technology in the last several years. Yeah, technology really is the key here. And as you know, here on the Future Foodcast, we love to talk about the impact of technology on anything in the food space. And this is a huge one right here. But also technology is helping you with figuring out once you do help the farmers optimize their yield and what they're doing, then what McCain does once they get those raw materials. Absolutely. So we have, as you would expect, a highly sophisticated manufacturing process, lots of interesting equipment installed in the factories. One of the things that we're looking to sort of further innovate on is matching the potatoes that our farmers bring us with the skews that we're trying to produce. And I'll, I'll give you an example of um, a wedge product, sort of, um, you know, a little more meatier versus a skinny French fry. You could think about, you know, a steak-free restaurant, high-end fresh restaurant, you know, the nice, very thin French fries. Those are very different skews, right? One needs a more kind of chewy potato, the other needs nice and crisp outside and, and a nice soft center. Um, and the ideal potato shape for each of those skews is different, or the ideal one. Now, we can make any skew really with any product, but ideally for the skinny fry, you want, you know, a long potato that might be skinnier for a wedge shape product, actually the fatter potato that might be shorter is is a good one. And so what we're actually trying to do now is is have better data about um, and describing the raw potato, describing those long skinny potatoes versus the short fat potatoes and better scheduling them against the production schedule and and making sure that we're we're, um, optimizing which potatoes we bring to deliver which skew. And what does that do for us? Number one, we can reduce waste. Um, because, you know, if you're trying to make a wedge out of a long skinny potato, you're going to get fewer wedges and you're going to have more of this sort of waste. But ideally, you want to have a proper finished French fry from as many as many of them as you can from a single potato. And the other thing we can do is we can um, speed up the line. We can run the line faster when you've brought in the right raw material for the right skew, which then means that we can produce more product that then ends up feeding more people. Wow, Carolyn. And once again, I mean, I guess all of this used to be done manually by humans. Yeah. And there's, it's amazing to me, the instincts that long-term mechaners will have about, oh, you know, certain farmer shed is full of the short fat potatoes and that scheduler sort of knows it intuitively. Um, but one thing that's happening is, is of course, um, our workforce, like many in manufacturing is aging. And so that 
deep knowledge and, and um, the business relationships that have been formed over decades, some of that knowledge is, is at risk of being lost, right? If we don't codify it properly. Um, and then, like you said, perhaps in some occasions, we're making suboptimal decisions because we're, we don't, you know, the human brain can't possibly imagine those millions of possible combinations and permutations. So I think that's the opportunity to come. Uh, I think we were doing it well today or great today, and, and we can do, be doing even better in the future, uh, empowered by analytics. That's that's all an exciting prospect because all of it means that we're just going to be maximizing the resources that we have. That's right. And you're not alone in the manufacturing space with with that knowledge that's in someone's head right now and trying to simulate that or figure out how those decisions are being made and in some ways duplicate that and, and AI and some of the other technologies that you're working on can certainly go a long way to helping you uh, maximize that. Yeah. And I think it's really important to get started now, right? While the knowledge is still in the company and while we're training new, new operators and new manufacturing teams on this so that the AI works with our teams, right? AI is never going to replace our teams. At the end of the day, we, we make, we, we're cooking a food product. You know, it, it's not that you can't possibly automate the entire assembly line. It doesn't work like that. We're dealing with a, an ingredient that is highly variable no matter what we do. It's a natural product. It, you know, it is food. Um, and that's that's the vast majority of the input is just a, a potato. And so how we convert that into a perfectly consistent and good that there's a lot of art in that. It's not all science and data. So I think it is important that we start this AI journey now to get the benefit of, of what we know from decades of making our perfectly finished good product against this highly variable raw. It's, it's a very hard, again, it's a data problem, but it's a hard one. And I don't, I don't think we're ever gonna perfectly solve it with data. Well, very smart though, to figure out the perfect marriage between the two, the, the human intellect and the data piece and, and just massage that along the way as you go and you'll get the best output. So that's the incoming and, and what we've got and how we figure out how to maximize that. But how do you figure the, the future piece and some of the planning? That's another big puzzle. Absolutely. And I think COVID helped us accelerate our journey on forecasting, like with many companies. Um, we obviously went through a period where we would say our shipment data was an unreliable view of actual demand in the marketplace. Certainly that happened when um, COVID closed down a lot of our customers, restaurants, et cetera. We, we noticed a huge immediate impact to our shipments to distributors. Um, but what was interesting was the data team, we went in search of other data sources that might better approximate, well, how many French fries do people really want to have when they're locked in their homes? Um, and what we found was really compelling was that, you know, and me too, a lot of stress eating, a lot of people still want to eat French fries. Um, and so what we saw was that consumer demand was actually pretty steady and they were getting French fries, you know, from retail, from obviously the delivery companies, Uber Eats, et cetera, a lot of drive-through activity with, you know, the classic QSRs. And so I think that helped give our leadership more confidence that although our shipments looked a bit scary for a couple of weeks there, we knew demand was going to come back. And in fact, you know, we had some weeks where, you know, we had some record shipments to sort of overcompensating for the lag in the shipments that happened at the beginning of COVID. 
So COVID really helped open our eyes to how we need to maintain a wealth of data sources to help us better contextualize the shipments that we see or the sales that we see with actual consumer demand. And as food company, you know, back of the value chain, our job is service our customers, service our distributors. We have we don't we don't tend to have a lot of data about consumers. Um, and about, for example, POS sales, but we're realizing how important it is that we do have insight into that so that we can better support our customers and we don't have sort of this laggy sort of shipment performance. Now, so that's early COVID, you know, now here we are more than two years past and what we're now finding is the global supply chain crisis where we're having issues like freight um, shipments across the country by road and rail, but also ocean freight. We, we ship a lot of products from North America, for example, to Asia, to Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, to our QSR customers there. We've been hugely impacted by um, variability in ocean freight shipping. So even more important to continue to have that customer-consumer level demand so that we can cascade that back into our planning cycle. So we are working on advanced analytics models for demand forecasting, and then flowing that um, through our planning processes around freight, and then of course back into production. Yeah, I think everyone is trying to figure that out uh, with the supply chain and what things might be a problem. You know, some right. resources are available, some resources are not available, and and that presents a challenge because you don't necessarily know until it's not able to be shipped, and maybe it's something that goes into one of your SKUs, one of your products that combines with your potatoes and you need you need it. So you have to figure out how to change that up a little bit. Absolutely, yeah, we've, we've had um, some challenges with, with inputs, as you said, um, less to our products, but for example, packaging, we've had some challenges procuring certain kinds of packaging. Again, the whole supply chain uh, is, is, a, is in crisis as everyone knows. So we're experiencing that as well. And um, we're just looking to, to data again to try to better inform, better predict, better understand also some of the root cause. Again, we're back in the value chain. We're sort of used to the bullwhip effect. And um, that's just been, it's been very hard to operate at the back end of that bullwhip for, for so many now years of uncertainty. And we're just craving more data closer to the action so that we can better understand what's coming at us and when. Well, and hopefully that will improve as those front end companies are able to partner with you on some of that customer data so that everybody, because they want a consistent supply as well, Absolutely. you know, when their demand is up, they want the supply to be up. So that's, that needs to be a good partnership that I know you guys are working on. Uh, during the, the lockdown or the COVID, the pandemic, I'm sure it won't be our last situation where we have a change in consumer habits, but uh, what I'm hearing from you is whether they were eating fries at home or eating them out as now things have normalized, like they were still eating fries. We were lucky that uh, fries were an important category of food for people throughout the pandemic. Um, yes, it's, it's a huge comfort food, Carolyn. And I think- Hey, the kids were home, best. you had to make lunch on the fly. There was quite a lot of French fries happening in, in my home as well. Um, we also um, are, are the world leading supplier of appetizers as well, which was also a category that grew um, during the pandemic. Um, it was interesting because we wouldn't have predicted that um, at the beginning. We, in fact, thought, well, restaurants are closed. Who's ordering an appetizer? But what we found was a lot of um, family style buying, we would have called it, what, you know, whether for drive through or pickup. And 
do you really need four orders of fries if you're a family of four? Maybe you have two orders of fries and yeah, you know, throw in some onion rings or you know, throw in some chili cheese nuggets, let's say if you're a Burger King. And that you know, became sort of a family sharing style because people were bringing it home to eat because there was nowhere else to eat. And then what we found was as we headed more into the summer months and in certain geographies, they were allowed to open outdoor dining, for instance, and what's better than a glass of wine on the patio, but a little app to share, right? So what we saw was actually growth in the appetizer category as well. Um, so we had growth in our in the price category and um, growth as well in the appetizer category. Interesting. When you said a growth in appetizers, exactly my thought had to do with what goes with appetizers, like a glass of wine before before dinner. You're always yeah. you know, having a drink with your appetizer. So I'm not surprised because you know, alcohol consumption, as we all know, also went up during the pandemic and uh, when people were locked in. Well, let's talk about also, McCain, back to investing, you know, because it is a private company, you can choose what to invest in. And you have a really neat concept that's that's really a home farm. If you could share yeah. with our listeners about that, I think they'd be very interested to hear about yeah. that initiative. Yes, yeah, so McCain last year announced the first of three farm of the future. And these are farms that are owned and operated by McCain employees. And the purpose of the Farms of the Future is to walk the talk. So managing these farms with the regenerative agriculture practices that we are working with farmers to implement on their farms, we are testing out those practices as well on our farms. So we announced our first Farm of the Future last year in New Brunswick, uh, in um, near where McCain's birthplace is, near Florenceville, New Brunswick. Uh, we actually just announced uh, in early June a second Farmer of the Future, which will be in South Africa. So we have um, two sort of plots of land there that total a little over 300 acres um, that will be used. Some of it is irrigated and some of it is not irrigated and we'll be working similar style of, of um, scientific experiments on the farm, but actively farming. So we intend to grow potatoes on those farms as well that we will then use in production, but trying out some of the practices that we're recommending for farmers. And it, it's at our cost. So it's, again, as a way of collecting data, collecting proof points to bring back to the growers. Um, so it's not their money at risk, it's our money at risk. Um, but what we're finding from the first farm in the future in New Brunswick is very successful. Um, we reduced the amount of pesticides applied by 16% um, in, in the farm of the future last year with stable yield. Um, so if you think about the impact of that, uh, and in particular, the applications that were reduced are those that contribute to CO2 emissions, very specifically is what we were targeting. Um, and if that's successful on that farm and, and we can show growers that data, we're hoping that they will be open as well to, to adopt those practices in their farm as well. Well, and McCain is such a large company and that is an excellent initiative because like you said, you're proving the concepts or disproving them. You're, you're figuring out what's working and what's not working. And you can then, your, your farmers and growers can benefit from that. But also those practices and those sustainable farming practices and maximizing uh, your yield, minimizing the pesticides, all of that taken to scale, even within McCain has a huge impact. But I know that other smaller growers will be able to take advantage of your experience in what you're doing. To, so, so then you'll be impacting other smaller 
smaller people as well that might not be working directly with McCain, but that information will be out there. So that's just a great yeah. initiative. I'm I'm just excited for McCain yeah. to be having that. And it's it's powerful that it's it's in the open. You can go and visit the farm of the future. Growers can come. We we host growers, we host customers to the farm of the future. So I think that's really exciting too. It's not just you know some great agronomist working in a lab or working on a small plot. You know, it is an active working commercial grade farm. Um, the farm of the future in New Brunswick uh, grows potatoes um, for production and grows seed potatoes. They act, I was there two weeks ago and they gave me a seed that I planted in my garden at home, potato seeds. So it's very exciting. It's, it's real. It's a real life um, program. And it's super exciting that we now have one in Africa because again, the regenerative agriculture practices that are going to work for growers in New Brunswick, for sure, they will be different practices that need to occur in, in Africa. Um, for example, much drier conditions that we need to control for, highly variable climate. Um, the availability of certain kinds of biodiversity elements are very different in Africa as well. And so again, it's part of us learning what is gonna work for growers. If we have this ambition of the 20, 30, 100%, we are putting our own skin in the game to make sure that, that we, we have enough advice and enough practices to bring to growers so they can, they can bring those to their farms. Yeah, truly a worldwide approach not just focusing on your home turf. And I said home farm, and then I laughed as you said, yeah, in Africa, we have about 300 acres. I'm sure people were thinking like the backyard home farm. It's much larger than that, listeners and yeah, viewers. Either. I just want to say I use that term, but farm of the future is much, much more applicable. Um, Carolyn, we have covered so many great topics, sustainability, climate change, maximizing growth, agriculture, regenerative agriculture, the farm of the future. Uh, is there anything else, though, that, that we didn't cover that you would like for our listeners to know about today? Yeah, I think we talked about consumer behavior and, and how the pandemic changed some behaviors. I think we're, again, entering a period of uncertainty around inflation and the possible impacts the United Nations or someone today was announcing that we are heading into a period where there will most certainly be a recession in certain countries in the world. And so, what again, uncertainty is basically a data problem, or that's how I tend to think about it. Again, the value of data in supporting business decisions in uncertain times like this. So while we may say that the, the worst of the pandemic is behind us in terms of the, the need for safety, there is uncertainty to any business. The war in Ukraine has impacted farmers immensely in terms of the cost of their inputs. And we have even yet to see the impact to um, the food supply chain in general. Um, and so while McCain is lucky that we have diverse growing regions and we're, we're able to sort of balance the global impact of that, it, is, it will be a very real phenomenon for many countries who face food security issues even before an inflationary environment and then further exacerbated by rising inputs costs to growers that will make farming uh, very challenging and the price of food will have to rise as a consequence. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We haven't even gone a full cycle yet to see the ramifications of some of the other worldwide events. I mean, we did have a pandemic, but moving forward, like you said, there are events that are currently happening and those that will happen in the future. So your modeling and forecasting and some of the data you're putting in place is even more important and comes into play as you're trying to balance all these different inputs to you being able to provide a good product at an affordable price and keeping the supply 
at you know meeting the demand that you have. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Carolyn. I think you have just given us such a wealth of information and we really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 